0: So we are starting chapter 5 this morning. We have some new people, so and, and it's been a little while. So let's recap where we've been so far. It's the chapter 1, what happened?
1: Got exiled, um, because she was
0: where, where are we in the world? Um, Persia. <laughs> Capital of Persia, Susa, right? And we're in the court of a king in... The Hebrew Bible or the English Bible, which is transliteration of the Hebrew, he's called Ahazurus. That's the English the Hebrew English version of the Hebrew version of his Persian name. But we looked at there's a different direction you can go, which is Persian to Greek. And what was the Greek transliteration? Xerxes. Yeah, Xerxes the first. So we're in the court of King Xerxes or Ahazurus, this Persian king in the city of Susa. He has a wife, a queen called Vashti. Vashti. What happens?
1: He throws a big party, they all get drunk. He asks for Vashti to come and parade herself in front of his guests. She says no. And then
2: he writes a decree um, where like, she can't, she's not queen anymore, but she can't leave the palace.
0: Right, so he has this massive banquet we looked at, like, historically, there seems to have been reason for that. He was trying to gather support behind him to go and invade Greece, which happened a couple, well, yeah, a year or two after that. At the end of the six-month celebration of his wealth and power and glory, he get they're all drunk at this party. He asks Vashti to come and show herself off, and she says no. Big, like, undermine of his respect and he's the whole point of this whole celebration was to get everybody to respect him and and obey him and his wife doesn't respect him or obey him and so big problems and so his advisors say you need to you need to banish her basically no longer queen strip her of that which he does some years pass he goes off to war in greece loses comes back and that's where chapter two picks up what happens in chapter two Why? So he, he's back, this war's over, he's re really sort of, I guess, evaluating his life and he's got no queen. He has no, yeah, no queen. And so he says, okay, well, what are we gonna do about this? His advisors say, go, basically just go gather all the most beautiful women in your kingdom and pick the one you like the most. And he thought this was a good idea. And then what happens? Who's Esther? Mordecai. The main
2: character. The main character, The protagonist. No, Mordecai,
0: Mordecai. Who's Mordecai? Um, yeah, guy. <laughs> it's not totally Rando. Yeah, so he's, he's Jewish, right? Who's he a descendant of? Okay. So. Hey. King Saul. Yeah, seems to, well, not, not a direct descendant of King Saul, but he seems to have been related to King Saul through a guy called Shimei. Shimei. Which we read about, anyway. Okay, so that's fine. So yeah, there's this Jewish guy living in Susa, and he is the guardian of his cousin Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther's her Persian name. And she gets brought into the palace with all the other beautiful young women, and she ultimately gets picked and made queen. Chapter 2. End of chapter 2, something happened that got recorded, but not really discussed much. Do you remember what that was? (laughs)
1: <laughs> and Esther, and
0: then she told mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are these two, two of the king's Xerxes' servants try to assassinate or plan to assassinate the king and Mordecai finds out about it and so he tells Esther who tells Xerxes and investigates, finds out it's true, they get executed and this gets recorded in the Chronicles of the King but nothing else happens. He doesn't get rewarded or anything else like that and we move on. But that comes back next next week, I think, to become very significant, or at least next chapter, whenever that is. Okay, chapter three.
2: Uh, um, um, Who's Haman? He's like one of the king's highest
0: people. Mm why not because <laughs> he doesn't really respect yeah yeah so there's this other guy that we get introduced to Haman he's a descendant of who was a descendant of Agag king of the Amalekites who Saul was supposed to execute but didn't Haman's his long long lost descendant uh and he gets elevated to this very high position in the kingdom. Everybody's supposed to bow to him in respect, but Mordecai won't bow to him. And when Haman realizes this, he gets really angry. Hurts his pride. So, what does he decide to do? He yeah, he decides, he says it was the idea of just taking revenge on Mordecai didn't feel like enough to him. He decided he was going to try to wipe out the entire Jewish race, basically. All the Jews in Persia, and at that stage, the Persian Empire covered pretty much the known world, and including Israel, and pretty much everywhere that the Jews were living. And so he cost, cast lots, which, yeah, the poor, um, to decide when that would happen, and it's going to happen in 11 months' time, in the 12th month. And so he gets this written, Okay, and then chapter four. Uh, who? So Mordecai discovers what's happened. Everybody's upset. Mordecai discovers what's happened. Puts on? And? So he's in, he's in mourning. There's fasting, there's sackcloth and ashes. He's in mourning over what's happened. Then what does he do? What does he see as a solution? Right. Says, go to the king, tell him what's happened, right? You have to plead for the lives of your people. And what does she say? Are you, crazy? Are you crazy? Everybody everybody knows what happens if I go to the king uninvited. Should Default is you're going to be executed. Unless he extends mercy. Yeah, the only hope I have is that maybe he shows mercy to me. He lifts his scepter to me and says, you can approach me. But he hasn't called for me. I haven't seen him in a month. Right? He probably doesn't even remember that I'm here. I have no idea what he thinks about me at the moment. And you want me to go in there and demand to be seen by the king. You're crazy. And he says, Do you think that you, hiding in the palace, are going to be the one Jew who escapes? He says, no. Deliverance and relief for the Jewish people will come from somewhere else, but you and your family will all perish. And then he says, but who knows whether you've come to your your royal position for such a time as this, if you're here for this very reason. And so then what does she say? She says, yes. What does she ask him to do? Not just him, right? Him and all the Jews in Susa fast and pray for three days, and then I'll go and see the king, and she says, "If I, If I die, I die. If I perish, I perish." Cool. That's what we got up to. Chapter four. Chapter five. Who wants to read? Who wants to start reading? read one and two.
2: Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of his, top of the scepter.:
0: So after on the third day, what do you think she spent these three days doing?: also and Well, she said she was also going to fast and pray. Inside herself, what do you think she's trying to do? Like what she spending that time doing. Cycling herself out, getting herself mentally prepared. For what? For the possible chance that she might die. Okay. What's she praying for? <laughs> How do you think she's feeling? we did. I have no doubt she was scared. I'm sure everything in her was telling her, run or hide, right? Certainly don't go and see the king. She didn't. After the three days, she went and saw the king, which is like massive amounts of courage and faith. But we did say, like, there is this other thing that goes on. Like, I imagine that as she was feeling, as she got scared, she would remind herself, look, if you die, you die. What do you think? So, well, what did we talk about last time? We talked about prayer and the idea that, like, often when we start praying, our prayer is, please, God, give me what what I want. Whatever that is, whatever it is that you're desperately praying for. And that, that doesn't tend to come with a lot of peace. Why not? Because you're still worried about the that the other thing Because God might say no. no, right? And your heart is desperate for that thing. And so, whether it's you who can't bring it about or whether it's God who might say no, you're still worried about it because you still want that thing. What is the prayer that brings peace? Yeah, have your way, right? That's the Lord's prayer. Your will be done. That's, that's what if I perish, I perish. That's, to me, that's what that is. That's coming to that place where it's like, I'm not asking you anymore to save my life. I'm just asking you to have your way and I trust you completely with whatever the outcome is. You know. And when you get to that place, that's where you experience that inner peace of complete surrender to God. And so I suspect that, like I say, as she was scared, and I have no doubt she was scared, she was also reminding herself, you're in God's hands. He's in control. Trust Him. And that with that would have come some degree of that peace that passes all understanding that makes no sense, peace that comes from God. Now, in the New Testament, we are told, Hebrews 4.16 let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you guys know that verse? Let us come boldly before the throne of grace? What does that mean? What's the picture? That Whoever's writing Hebrews, maybe Paul, is using here. We come with confidence to God. To God, right? That's the throne. Whose throne? God's throne that we're coming before boldly, with courage, not afraid. Yeah? So that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's led us therefore come boldly. There's a reason why we can come boldly, confidently to the throne of grace before God's throne. Why? What's the therefore, therefore? Where would we look? The first before, yeah? Okay, so this is the verse before. We don't have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace so that we can obtain mercy so why can we come boldly before God's throne not afraid because God understands weakness why Who is our high priest? It's not a trick question. Jesus, yeah. Jesus is the high priest. And if you read more of Hebrews, that is made more explicitly clear. Jesus is the high priest. What was was the high priest? What was their job? And? And? Pray for the people of Israel, right? Bring the blood of the sacrifice before God's throne in the temple and pray for the people. That was the high priest in the Jewish temple. Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly temple, the true temple. And he's doing the same thing. He's there to to pray for us, right? To bring the blood of the sacrifice before the Father on our behalf. What blood is Jesus bringing before God? His own blood, right, okay. So we have Jesus as our high priest and our high priest is not incapable of sympathizing with our weakness because you can kind of imagine like, you know, you have this holy priest in the temple who never has to deal with, I don't know, the troubles of life, get themselves all dirty. They get to wash themselves all the time in in the bath that they have there, right? and he lives a holy life and he can't really relate to the reality of life for so many of the Israelites, you know, and we can kind of, I guess, have the same idea with God. But the point that's made here is that no, Jesus experienced everything we experienced. He experienced all our weaknesses. He experienced all the temptation that we experienced. And so he can sympathize sympathize with us. He knows what it's like, right? And because of that, we can come boldly before God's throne, because we have a high priest there. We have a lawyer, an advocate, who's able to plead our case on our behalf, and he can do it well, because he knows what we've experienced. Okay. So we're told we can approach God's throne boldly. The other thing that's amazing is it's a throne of grace. What is grace? So yeah, we talk about the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy is you're not getting what you deserved, usually a bad thing. You deserved punishment, you're not getting the punishment, that's mercy. Grace is when you're getting something you don't deserve. Which is like better, right? And we've talked about this before, like in my mind I imagine a king, this is obviously back in the days, who defeats his enemies. He could show them mercy. He could allow them to live as slaves in His kingdom. Yeah? That would be showing mercy. We've certainly been shown mercy by God. But what we have is even better than that. God has also shown us grace. He hasn't just allowed us to live as slaves in His kingdom. He's, well, at the very least... Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves because a slave does not understand what his master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have revealed to you everything I heard from my Father. Do we deserve to have Jesus calling us his friend? No. So at the very least, we're friends. But Paul says, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if you were a son, then you are also an heir through God. And in Romans, when we were in chapter 8, there's this amazing passage where Paul says, You didn't receive the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And so, like that is incredible, right? that God has given us, he's chosen to give us his spirit and make us his children. That's grace. So again, this king hasn't just shown us mercy, hasn't just allowed us to live as slaves in his kingdom. This king has like invited us into the palace, made us a part of his family. And so we can come boldly before his throne. Right? With the confidence that a child approaches his father. And when we do, we'll find grace to help in time of need. That's us and God. It's not Esther. She doesn't have that assurance from the king of Persia that she can come boldly before him. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Right, She's not allowed to come boldly before him. She can come when she's invited. Otherwise, she risks death. And so, I think you kind of see that in this passage. This is not really approaching Xerxes with confidence. It sort of sounds like she just kind of hung out out there where he'd be able to see her. On the third day, she put on her royal attire, stood in the inner court of the palace opposite the king's quarters. So she just kind of hung out there hoping he'd you know, catch a, catch a sight of her. But that was enough. The king saw Queen Esther standing in the court and she met with his approval. She received grace from the king in her time of need. So, huge sigh of relief. Sure, we all had complete faith in God, but in the heart, you never know, you worry. Okay, something else that maybe is worth discussing, I don't know, but Esther put on her royal attire. Why do you think she did that? Sorry? To look as 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 good as possible, for who? For the king. For the king, yeah so I won't make too much of this, it's not exactly uh, necessarily biblical, more just my advice to you guys as young people, is that there can be value in presenting yourself well, and that can include the way that you dress. Peter says, let your beauty not be external, the braiding of hair and wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes, but the but the inner person of the heart, the lasting beauty of a gentle and tranquil spirit, which is precious in God's sight. Paul says something very similar to Timothy. He says uh, that, and in both cases, technically, the passages are addressed to women, but as far as I'm concerned, like the principle underlying what Paul is saying and Peter is saying is as applicable to, to to everybody. It's just as applicable to everybody. So, Paul says to Timothy that their adornment must not be with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. And so, on the one hand, and like this is biblical, we're not supposed to be trying to attract attention to ourselves by the way that we look. What is supposed to attract people to us? Yeah, Timothy, your good works, your good deeds. Peter, your inner person, your inner character, gentle and tranquil spirit, perhaps courage and integrity, right? That inner character that Jesus is producing in us, that is what should be attracting people to us. Not the way that we dress, the clothes that we have, the car we drive, the phone we use. Whatever else. (laughs) Or your bank account. (laughs) At the same time, while, while this is very clearly taught in Scripture, is that we are not supposed to be trying to catch people's attention by the way that we look. You don't have to go to the other extreme. (laughs) there's no value or virtue in like repelling people from you (laughs) by the way that you look or the the way way that you dress the way that you dress (laughs) that's not helpful either no, no, okay I'm not talking okay, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about being ugly whereas specifically I, I'm not yeah. Anyway, we're specifically talking about the, the way that you dress yourself the way that you present yourself Yeah hmm. <laughs> So the fact is like we're living in the world and it's true that our identity who we are the thing that the thing that makes us valuable and Worthy is not found in the way that we dress Or the phone that we use, or the guitar that we have, or the sport that we play, or any of those things. Our value is found in the fact that we are created in God's image. Yeah? Our identity, the thing that makes us valuable, is the fact that we are a part of, God's, a part of the body of Christ, part of Jesus. That's where our identity is found. And so all of those other things are utterly meaningless as far as our actual value and worth is concerned. They're utterly meaningless to God, but they're not entirely irrelevant to other people who are the people that we're trying to share God's love with. And so I think that there is wisdom in presenting yourself in a way that is productive to whatever your purpose is. And so if you need a job, yeah, you might need to dress nice, right? If you need people to respect you, then... Dress, dress like somebody, <laughs> dress like somebody they're going to respect. Cut your hair, wash your face, put on deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's nothing wrong with any of that. Yeah? Just know why you're doing it. You're not doing it to attract attention to yourself. You're doing it actually, in general, I would say it's exactly the opposite. You're trying not to stand out. Not with your flashy hair and earrings and, and, and whatever, or with your dirty hair and smelly clothes. Right? You're just. <laughs> you're basically trying to be as unoffensive externally, or basically for there to be nothing distracting people from what, they're, what we actually want them to be seeing, which is our inner character, the love of God that we have in us. Right? Yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, I think it's part of what Paul's talking about. Although it's not, he's got something slightly different in mind, but it's related. When he says, "Instead, we endure everything so that we may not be a hindrance to the gospel of Christ." And in Second Corinthians, he says, "We do not give anyone an occasion for taking an offense in anything, so that no fault may be found in our ministry." And so, like I said, this isn't—he's not technically talking about clothing, but I think the way that we present ourselves is part of that, of giving no opportunity for offense of seeing no obstacle or hindrance in the way of the gospel and of becoming, as Paul says, elsewhere, all things to all people so that by all means we may save some. And what that looks like is going to depend completely on your audience, right? What you, how you want to present yourself if you're going for a job interview on the North Shore is probably completely different to if you're going to work with kids in a, in a school in South Auckland or if you're going to go to speak to farmers in Southland. Or certainly if you're going to be going and ministering to people in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Yeah? It's going to be completely different. The point is that, um, well, for Esther, in this case, it was, she put on her royal attire. Right? She presented herself in a way that was going to make her, make it easier, easiest possible for there to be the least things possible to get in the way of Xerxes receiving her. And I think that there's wisdom in that. Certainly, There was no harm because it says that she met with his approval. Xerxes liked what he saw, and so he invited her to approach the throne. Okay, verses 3 to 5. Who wants to read? The king said to her, What is on your mind, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even as much as half the kingdom will not be, give, will be given to you. Esther replied, If the king is so inclined, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for the king. The king replied, Find Haman quickly so that we can do as Esther requ- Esther requests. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Pretty gracious response from the king. What is on your mind, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even as much as half the kingdom will be given to you. We talked about, so we talked about this back in chapter 2, where Esther found favor in the sight of Heggai, the... the 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 servant who was in charge of looking after all the young women. And and we looked at this word, chesed, which is used there, and it's goodness and kindness, that basically he liked her and so he was kind to her. And that's something you see quite commonly in the Bible. People who are faithful to God, and we looked at a bunch of these things, like who have integrity and honor in the way that they behave to one another, who are humble, who are honest and forgiving, and who are not judgmental, they tend to find favor with the people around them, people like them. And we had a whole bunch of examples, Joseph, Samuel, David, Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra, Jesus, the disciples. It's not to say that everybody loved them, but a lot of people did. And Esther here finds favor in the sight of her king, Xerxes. I have no doubt that God also softened Xerxes' heart towards her. But I also suspect that Esther was all of those things, that, she, that her character reflected God's character at least enough of the time that Xerxes genuinely liked her and was glad to see her. And so he says to her, what is your request? What do you want? What does she say? Come have dinner with me. The, was that what you were expecting her to say? I guess it depends if you know the story. But no, probably not, right? Do you think that's what Xerxes was expecting her to say? No. She risked her life to come before him for dinner. and ask him for dinner. Probably not. And invites uh, Haman along. So why do you think she did that? Why didn't she tell him what she wanted? Why did she decide to invite him to dinner? <laughs> well, maybe it's not not. Exactly, manipulation We support that. Do you think this was the plan? No. Like, did she go in there? Do you think planning to invite him to dinner? Or did she go in and she got scared? And she just like made up this. Su- <laughs> I have no idea, honestly, no idea. It could be, it could be a whole bunch of things. It could be that she just got scared in the moment. If it was me, that's what it would be. I'm like, just procrastinate, delay, 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 right? And now she has to rush out and try and make a banquet for him. Don't know. Or maybe. Maybe she knew that this was a better approach. Maybe she did want to soften him up. We looked at that. Apparently, the Persians like to make decisions when they're drunk. That was a fairly common thing. So maybe that was part of it. Maybe Maybe she's very sensitive to the Spirit of God and felt him saying to her, like, not yet. You know, just wait. And as we'll see, like, whatever the reason was from Esther's perspective, which I don't know, as we'll see how the story unplays, this, God was absolutely in control of this. This was a part of his plan. And this delay was crucial to the way that it's all going to play out. But from Esther's side, I have no idea what she, what she was thinking. But uh, what is clear is that she wants Haman there. Which is also a bit amazing to me. Because if it was me, I wouldn't want him there. I just talked to the king quietly, right, on the side. But she apparently wants to face Haman... Or confront Haman face-to-face, which is, yeah, but courage. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, so, yep, the king says, great, we'll, we'll come, go find Haman, and we'll, we'll come. Okay, so then let's go, verse 6, who wants to read verse, just verse 6 for now?
1: While at the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your request? It shall be given to you. What is your petition? Ask for as much as half the kingdom, and it shall be done.
0: Okay. So I found this kind of interesting. A lot of modern translations basically says while they were drinking. The king asked her again, what is your request? What do you want? But the Hebrew actually says during the banquet of wine. And so the question is, like, what is that? Was this just a drinking party, this banquet? Was there no food there? When I had a bit of a dig into this, it was actually quite interesting. So Herodotus, who's a, we've looked at him a bunch of times, a Greek historian who wrote about 50 years later, he wrote that about the Persians, their courses are few, the desserts that follow many, and not all served together. This is why the Persians say of Greeks that they rise from the table still hungry, because not much dessert is set before them. Were this to be give, were, were this too given to Greeks, the Persians say they would never stop eating. And so apparently the Persians liked Peace. what dessert? Dessert. They liked dessert. Yay. Yeah. According to the Greeks, who had to go and sit in their courts, they reckoned that the main meal was not very interesting, kind of plain, not a lot of options. But after they'd finished eating their main course, there was just like all of these desserts, just a continuous stream of desserts. But but so then, okay, but what about the banquet of wine? Well, apparently they didn't drink wine during their main meal. The wine was drunk during the desserts. After they'd finished eating. And so a different historian, Elianus, says, For after they have done the eating, they betake themselves to wine and fall to their cups freely. They drink lots. <laughs> and so that kind of gives a different color to like to what's going on here. Is that it's not that Xerxes immediately is like while they're eating their meals, like Esther, what's what's up? He waited patiently through the whole meal, probably through so all, I don't know, awkward small talk. And he knows there's something going on here, right? Again, she didn't risk her life just to have dinner with him. And so eventually they finished the meal. She still hasn't said anything, which again, I can totally relate to. Just delay, delay, delay. After the meal, they're now enjoying their desserts and drinking the banquet of wine, the wine part of the banquet. And he says to her, like, okay, well, so why are we here? You know, what's this about? What do you want? But with quite a lot of... Um, Tenderness. Well, yeah, not there, but anyway. Yeah. Says to her, what's your request? I'll give you anything you want. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Which is pretty cool. Also kind of similar, like we looked at our privilege of coming boldly before God. Jesus says something fairly similar to us too, right? Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. He says, is there anyone among you if who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? <laughs> so Have you guys, ex- haven't experienced that? Good. He says, if you then, although you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So it's pretty cool. And uh, not wholly unlike the offer that Xerxes has just made to Esther. Tell me what you want. I'll give it to you. So this must be it, right? Moment of truth. Everything is going to be revealed. Not exactly. Esther responds. Do you want to finish reading that part? Verses
1: 7 and 8. Esther responded, My my request and my petition is this. If I have found favour in the king's sight, and if the king is inclined to grant my request and approve my petition, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. At that time, I will do as the king wishes.
0: (laughs) Big letdown, yeah? For us and probably for Xerxes as well. She says, uh, same excuse as well. <laughs> if it was an excuse, it's not thinking on it anyway. Yeah, uh, uh, can you come for another banquet tomorrow? I'll tell you then. Was he, at this banquet? he was at this banquet. So if I found favor in the king's sight, and if the king is inclined, she clearly has found favor in his sight, right? But she's still scared. And so he says, come tomorrow for another banquet. And at that time, I will do what? You're asking, I'll tell you what this is all about. Again, why? No idea. Again, I don't know if she can tell that Xerxes isn't in the right mood. To me, that seems hard to imagine because he seems pretty like, yeah, exactly. He seems like it'd be, I can't imagine a better invitation to speak than what he gave her. But uh, is she scared and procrastinating? Again, if it was me, that would definitely be what's going on, but don't know. Maybe, again, she can feel God's spirit telling her, not yet. And again, what we do know as the story goes on becomes very clear is that whatever the reason is from Esther's perspective, this was all a part of God's plan. And the next chapter is kind of hilarious how it plays out. But for now, yeah. Yeah, whatever the reason is from Esther's perspective, this is clearly 100% God working all things together for good. Working his plan out in, in this situation. And I can't imagine what happens between today when she has this banquet and tomorrow when she has the next banquet. Like, you, I couldn't imagine a better story. It's amazing. Okay, so anyway, but we'll see that in maybe next week. For now. Let's read next, verses 9 and 10.
2: So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh.
0: To me, that's like almost comic. You guys probably have different comics, but like for me, I just like picture Yosemite Sam or Elmer Fudd. Like he's walking along all whistling, all happy. He's just had this great experience with Esther and the king, right? And then he sees Mordecai and he's just like, I can just imagine him like rising up red and, and then he's like, no, restrain yourself, brushes himself off, you're important and off he goes home. couple of comments. Firstly, despite everything that's happened, Mordecai still isn't bowing. Which to me shows a tremendous amount of integrity. That like, Mordecai is going to do what he believes is right, regardless of what the consequences are, no matter how hard it is. He doesn't even tremble in Haman's presence. He's not even scared of him. Or at the very least, and we talked about this a bit last week, well, last time, he's more scared of God than he is scared of Haman. Right? He's scared of the right thing. He's willing to pay the right price. And so he isn't going to bow to Haman no matter what the consequences are. And then the other thing is like, this is a flashback to chapter three, pretty much. This is this, the issue here Haman's response to Mordecai not respecting him. That's pretty much what started this whole mess, right? It's the pride and, and insecurity that Haman feels. That he's completely enraged when somebody doesn't show him the respect that, well, he obviously thinks he deserves. And to me, that shows like a very deep seated insecurity on the part of Haman. And we talked about this quite a lot in chapter three. But if you're confident and content in yourself, that you're convinced of your own value and worth, you don't need everybody else to validate that for you, right, to tell you how important and how great you are. Haman clearly does. He just has one person who doesn't respect him and it completely, like, crushes all his pride. Well, maybe it doesn't crush his pride, but it certainly causes major problems for his pride. And you can see how poisonous this is, this insecurity, because like everything he has and everything that he's just enjoyed, and it all comes to nothing because one person doesn't like him. But as we said at the time, Haman's not unique, right? This is something that not everybody maybe, but almost everybody will struggle with, is finding our worth and value in what other people think about us. The problem is that as long as you're getting your, as long as you have your identity and your value and your worth in whatever, your personality, your looks, your marks at school, the sport you play, your gaming, like how high you are on the leaderboard or whatever, As long as your worth is invested in those things, you're never going to feel confident and secure because you know yourself really well, better than the other people, right? And so whatever they tell you about yourself, you know all your failures and inadequacies and and weaknesses, right? And so you're never going to be completely convinced by them that you're the best because you know you're not. Yeah. And so you're never really going to be content and satisfied. You're always going to have that insecurity because maybe there'll be one person who will figure out the truth. You know? And bring all of that, uh, whatever, fragile confidence crashing down. And so that's why, as we said at the time, it's so important that... That we find our self-worth and our self-value in what God thinks about us, not in what other people think about us. That we find our identity in who we are in Jesus, not in all of these other things. The fact is that, as we said earlier, we are each, you are each, a unique creation of God. If you're saved, you're a member of Jesus' body, the spirit of the creator of the world. He has chosen to put His spirit in you, which is amazing. And God has done that despite knowing everything there is to know about you. Again, in Hebrews, a couple verses earlier, it says, No creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must render account. So, nothing is hidden to God. He knows everything about you, all your weaknesses, all your failures, and yet He loves you. According to John and Ephesians, Peter, He's called you and chosen you. He's forgiven you, and as we looked at in Romans, he has predestined you to be conformed into the image of Jesus, to be made like Jesus. What about all of your weaknesses, inadequacies, and failures? So that's all great, right? What God, what God thinks of us and what He's going to do with us. But the reality is, at the meantime, we're still various degrees of a mess, at least inside. Maybe we're able to convince other people that we're not by putting on a good front on the outside, but we know, and God knows. So what about that? Well, it's interesting. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, we have this treasure in clay jars so that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. What does that mean? What do you think the treasure might be? have read that beforehand. What well, first? Oh, sorry, I'm in the wrong place. I'm going to have a look quickly. I should have looked at this beforehand. 2 Corinthians 4, see what it says before. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe so that they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. We don't proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness is the one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge of God in the face of Christ. And we have this treasure in jars, glass, jars of clay. So it's the, the glorious knowledge of God, the gospel, the light shining in our hearts, it's the treasure. And we have it in clay jars. What are the clay jars? Us, why are we clay jars? What does that mean? As opposed to what? What other types of jars might you have? Back then. What other kinds of containers might you have? Is it Timothy that talks about like gold, silver, silver? vessels Yeah, so you could have like glorious ones or you can have clay ones fragile ones that break easily Yeah Where are the clay jars and the whole point is we're weak and we're not that pretty looking Why do we have the treasure in clay jars? What no, what does it say? Why? Well, what does it say? Why did God want it that way? Yeah, it's so that it's obvious that whatever's coming out of us is not from us; it's from God, right? It's to give Him, to bring greater glory to Him. Paul, who's writing this, he had plenty to boast about, plenty that he could have, that could have made him a gold, silver vessel, right? He was a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee trained by one of the greatest rabbis ever, Gamaliel. He apparently kept the law perfectly. He worked harder, suffered more than all the other disciples. But he also had weaknesses. He talks about this thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to remove it. But God said to him, My grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Like, it's there for a reason, right? It's to show my power through it. And so then Paul says, so I will gladly boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of God may reside in you. And so realize that when it comes to glorifying God in your life, your weaknesses are actually better than your strengths. Because that's the place where God's power is going to make and His grace. (laughs) The fact that He's good to you, even though you don't really deserve it, right? That's where that's going to be made the most clear to people. Yeah, so again, you are valuable, you are special. You're made the way you are for a reason whatever other people think about about you, and whatever weaknesses and inadequacies you have, know that like you can boast about those because God is powerful enough to work through you despite them. And those are the areas of your life often where, God, where the power of Jesus will shine most clearly. Haman doesn't understand any of that. He's still looking to other people to find value and worth in himself. And so he tries to ignore Mordecai and he goes home and invites all of his friends over. Why do you think he's inviting his friends over? So what's he wanting to get out of it? Okay, should we just try to get to the end? How much read?
1: Haman then recounted to them his fabulous wealth, his many sons, and how the king had magnified him and exalted him over the king's other officials and servants. Haman said, furthermore, Queen Esther invited only me to accompany the king to the banquet that she prepared. And also tomorrow I am invited along with the king. Yet all this fails to satisfy me so long as I have to see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate.
0: So why did he invite his friends over?
1: <laughs>
0: to boast to them. Yeah. Would you like to be his friend? Yeah. So what is Haman what is after here? Why has he invited his friends over so that he can boast about them? What does he want to get out of that? Yeah, exactly. He's looking for that validation, right? He's wanting them all to go, wow, the queen invited you to have dinner with the king? Oh, you're so cool. Wow. You know, you know the king. Amazing. Exactly. Do you like people like that? No. Yeah, pride and arrogance are exceptionally unattractive qualities. When we're talking about, like, not repulsing people, <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> so don't be like that. Don't boast. In Proverbs, it says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, someone else and not your own lips, which I like that. It's kind of, and in Jeremiah, God says, wise people should not boast that they are wise. Powerful people should not boast that they are powerful. Rich people should not boast that they are rich. If people want to boast, they should boast about this. They should boast that they understand and know me. They should boast that they know and understand that I, the Lord, act out of faithfulness, fairness, and justice in the earth, and that I desire people to do these things, says the Lord. So, don't boast. Don't be proud. Humility is where it's at. Second to last Psalm, Psalm 149, has this very cool verse. It says, For the Lord takes delight in His people. He makes the humble beautiful with salvation. That last word there, well, it's with salvation. In Hebrew, it's Be Yeshua. Be Yeshua. Be Yeshua. It's actually made up of two words. It's a compound word. The first part is Be, and it means in or with. The other word is Yeshua. It means salvation or deliverance. So, He will make you beautiful with salvation. But do you recognize? that word, Yeshua. What is it? That is Jesus. It is the word that in Greek is translated Jesus. That's Yeshua was Jesus' Hebrew name. His name literally meant salvation, which I think is kind of cool. And so, technically, what the psalm says is the Lord takes delight in his people and he makes the beautiful hum, be, the humble beautiful In Jesus, which is kind of cool. Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this really is like the encouragement. We talk about having an eternal perspective, that the focus of our life is not these 70, 80 years that you're alive here on earth, but that rather like our focus in our life and the way that we orient ourselves and the things that we do our focus should be on our eternal life our life in heaven right and Jesus is basically saying you've got a choice you can exalt yourself now you can make yourself important for this 70 80 years or you can be humble now and be exalted for eternity which is better Second one, yeah. That's that's the point. Rather be humble now, be last, not first, be the servant, not the served, and trust Jesus that the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who's our example? Jesus is our example. Second Corinthians. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, he became poor for your sakes, so that you, by his poverty, could become rich. And there's this amazing passage in Philippians where Paul says, each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude towards one another that Christ Jesus had who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, looking like man and sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And as a result, God highly exalted him. That's exactly what Jesus said, right? Humble yourself, And you will be exalted. And that's what Jesus, yeah, he's the example of that. Okay. Okay, two minutes and then we'll be done. This is not Haman. Clearly, Haman is not humble, he's proud. He's there boasting about himself. And the Proverbs also have plenty to say about that. Proverbs 11 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. This is kind of double edged, right? With humility comes wisdom. Is Haman humble? No. So what do you think? Definitely not, wise. not wise, right. And you can see that in the story, right? He's completely blind to what's going on here. He's boasting about the fact that Esther invited him to dinner. She has no idea what's actually going on, right? He, he has no idea what's actually going on. He's blind. This is coming. With pride comes disgrace. That's on its way. And the book of Proverbs has a lot more to say about that. Pride goes before destruction, and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Before destruction, the heart of a person is proud, but humility comes before honor. A person's pride will bring him low, but one who has a lowly spirit will gain honor. So, you can probably guess what's coming for Haman. Proud Haman, right? Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good. And in the meantime, you can also see how sad this all is. Again, this insecurity and this pride that he has is that despite everything that he has and everything that is experienced, all of it fails to satisfy him because of one guy, right? Because of Mordecai. Okay. We'll stop there. There's one... Uh, should we just finish? Can we finish? Is it okay? Does anybody need to go? Okay, because there's like literally one verse left. Okay, so, verse 14. Somebody read that? Anybody? You can read.
2: Haman's wife Jerish and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows 75 feet high made, and in the morning tell the king that Mordecai should be hanged on it. Then go with the king to the banquet contented. It seemed like a good idea to Haman, so he had the gallows made.
0: So some wife, right? His wife and his friends say to him, look, here's what you do. First thing tomorrow, go get Mordecai executed, and then you can go to the banquet in peace and enjoy it. Yeah? Later, later. But what you can see is the The stakes for Mordecai have just ramped up massively, right? He doesn't have 11 months for God to intervene and save him. He's literally got 12 hours. Tomorrow, his fate is going to be decided. It also means that Esther's decision to delay a day, to not tell Haman, uh, not tell Xerxes what's going on, but to say, can you come again tomorrow, That, that could cost Mordecai his life. Kind of like <laughs> no. And then, last thing before we finish so the, they tell him to build this gallows that's 70 feet, 75 feet high, 25 yeah, yeah. meters. That's I try to find something to give context, and this is a sculpture in Cardiff, and it's apparently 25 meters tall. So that's what we're looking at. You can see how little the people are underneath it. So, so she says, Make a giant gallows to hang him. We mentioned this before. Hold up. We mentioned this in before, but in chapter 2, the, the Hebrew that's translated hanged on a gallows is a bit ambiguous. The word for hang is tal, It means to suspend or hang. Basically, just put something up in the air. The word that's translated gallows is et. It's just the word for tree. It can be... A wood, plank, stick, etc. So it's just some wooden thing that somebody is suspended on. And so the question is, how did the Persians hang people on wood? Oh. <laughs> so I spent a couple of hours, it was a couple of weeks ago now, looking into this, and it was kind of horrific. I felt sick at times. And it's, yeah, it's it's... It is content warning. It's shocking, uh, it's horrible, horrible how brutal and cruel people can be to each other and have been throughout history and even fairly recently. The long story short is, it's not completely clear how the Persians, what this involved, like what Haman was building here. We do know that the Persians impaled people on stakes. That's something that they likely adopted from the Assyrians who were a couple of empires before them. There's this, um, in Chronicles, we read about this guy called King Sennacherib of Assyria, and he attacks a place called Lachish, which is in Judah. That battle is actually memorialized in a carving on a wall in Nineveh, in his capital, which now you can go and have a look at in the British Museum in London. And this is like this relief that actually shows the inscription which is over there in Assyrian reads Sennacherib the mighty king king of the country of Assyria sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish I give permission for its slaughter. So it's it's kind of cool like we have this verse in Corinth in Chronicles talking about this battle like we also have this from history that, just, that actually is a, an illustration of that battle. On this big relief, there is this image, which is them being impaled. So this impaling was definitely a part of the Assyrian culture. Sometimes it was done after death, just to further humiliate people. But sometimes it was the method of death, and it was... Horrific, like, honestly, like I said, I felt quite sick at times. Unbelievably painful and cruel. We fast forward to the Persian Empire, and Herodotus, again, writes that about, this is Darius I, so this is Xerxes' dad. He writes, thus Babylon was taken a second time, and when Darius was master of the Babylonians, he destroyed their walls, tore away all their gates, neither of which Cyrus had done at the first taking of Babylon. Moreover, he impaled about 3,000 men that were prominent among them. As for the rest, he gave them back their city to live in. And so this was clearly also something that the Persians practiced. Later, Alexander the Great brought this into the, brought it to Europe in the Greek empire and ultimately it was adopted by the Romans. Now somewhere along the way, this impaling got modified into crucifixion. The problem is that the Greek words that are used are not, they're also a bit ambiguous. And so we don't actually know. Certainly by the time that Jesus was executed in Rome, we're talking crucifixion on a cross. But where that transition happened, we don't really know. It's all described as like hanging on wood. And so... Again, don't really know what's involved here. Maybe they're saying build a huge, huge, massive cross to hang Mordecai on. Or maybe it's just like a massive pole with a pointed end. don't know. One of those. And to bring that story to a close, Constantine I was the first Christian emperor of Rome. It's about 300 AD. And he... During his reign, abolished crucifixion as a means of execution. Mostly in veneration of Jesus, because he's now Christian, Jesus was crucified, we don't do this anymore. And so, thank goodness for that. What veneration? <laughs> like, oh, I don't even know. Uh,
2: underneath, underneath Google. Google it. <laughs>
0: to honor him, basically yeah okay let's pray quickly and then we can go sorry this is way late hopefully there's still cake Lord God thank you for this morning thank you for your word Lord thank you for the incredible privilege we have to come boldly before your throne Lord and to ask and know that you you love us And that you will do what's best for us, Lord. That you will work things together for good in our lives. And I ask that you would um, go with us as we go out back into the world, Lord. That you would help us to find our value in you. Our worth in what you think of us. And uh, to represent you well. To let your light shine through us in a way that brings glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.